study that we are conducting on a weekly basis, doing our live streaming. And to our church family, we've been praying for you on a daily basis, and thank God that so many are doing well. So far, we haven't heard of anybody with any of the COVID-19 illness, and several have had some minor incidences where there's colds and some headaches and things like that. But so far, we haven't heard of any serious illnesses, but continue to pray one for another. Uh, we do have several different prayer requests as well as announcements. I'll save those until our morning service time. And uh, basically what we're going to do this morning is get into a Bible study in a few moments. But before I do that, I want to just uh, again thank those who are putting in some extra hours here, uh, helping us out to be able to do this live streaming. We are excited about uh, the potential that we can use the technology that's at our disposal. We were so much uh, better off than many other ministries as we had already been doing some live streaming and we're just in the process of ramping up a lot of our uh, equipment so that we could even expand to do our entire services and then all of a sudden COVID-19 came and we had the shutdown and as a result uh, a lot of the equipment and everything was in place and we were able to continue this ministry and we're just so thankful that we're able to do that and be able to minister this way with you this morning. We are still uploading on a regular basis uh, materials that we uh, are recording some things weekly, Bible studies, different uh, addiction studies, as well as messages. And I'll mention some of those that are going to be coming out later this week. I'll mention them in the morning service so that you're up to speed on those different items. What we wanted to do this morning is we want to do our Bible study here at this time. I'm headed for Mark chapter 14, and I'll join you there in a minute. Uh, and then after the end of this time, we're going to do our break, and during that break, we'll have our announcements going. Plus, we have decided that what we want to do is make sure that what music we play has words so that if you want to use that for your time of singing and sing along with some of that uh, recorded music, you're welcome to do that. Then at 10.30, we will start our live streaming again, and that'll start off with just a few preliminary comments. We have a variety of different uh, items we want to add to that, as we did last week, and then continue on with our service. This morning at this time, what I want to do is do a study in Mark chapter 14, and we're going to spend a little bit more time in Mark 14 this morning in this first session than we will in the second session, just because we have more time that we can spend. So if you would join me, we're headed into Mark chapter 14. And we're going to do a study on the life of some of the people that are involved. Uh, you all know that in the last few weeks, things have all of a sudden changed and drastically shifted. Just a couple, three weeks ago, it seems like, uh, like an eon ago, but there was that one week where all of a sudden it was like, okay, we need to cut back a little bit here, a little bit there. And day by day, everything was changing so drastically, and then all of a sudden, we come down to this point of just being a shutdown. We are not the first group of people that had a week filled with things changing every single single day. When you go back into the gospel of Mark, all of a sudden there every single day in that last week of Jesus Christ's life, things were changing dramatically. He comes in, there's a parade on Sunday morning. The crowds are cheering and they're excited and the disciples think he's setting up his kingdom. Then all of a sudden we have the uh, events that take place on that Monday. He goes in and he cleanses the temple and it's still a lot of enthusiasm by he and his disciples, but Things change where all of a sudden the hatred of the leaders they get ramps up where they want to make sure they get rid of him. And Tuesdays, a lot of debate, a lot of controversy, a lot of political intrigue happening during that one day that, that they come and they ask the questions. And for them, the rest of the week just continues to just things like are happening at, at high speed, warp speed, where all of a sudden Tuesday night they go out in the city and they talk to Jesus and he predicts that the, this beautiful city, beautiful temple, 
temple is going to be totally destroyed. And their response is, Lord, we don't understand what's going to happen tomorrow. What's going to happen the next day? What's going to happen in the years ahead? Are you going to set up your kingdom? And they just don't know what's happening from day to day. And then it gets worse. They have that Last Supper meal. Things are going well. Jesus announces somebody's going to betray. They're shocked. They go into the Garden of Gethsemane. When they're in that garden, all of a sudden troops come. They arrest Jesus. And Jesus goes on trial. And he's on that trial that Thursday night, all night long. The trials take place. The next morning, he's before Pilate. And then on Friday, he ends up on the cross. Their world is shattered. They are going through this just warp speed changes hour by hour, day after day. And then we all know it all culminates with on Sunday morning, things all of a sudden reversing. But during that week, things are just rapidly going on. Now, what I want to do right now for this Bible study is look at one event that's kind of just slipped into the story. And for many, they just kind of overlook it. But it is a phenomenal story with just tremendous lessons. It's in Mark chapter 14. And we read what happens in Mark chapter 14, starting down in verse 1, and I'm going to go down through verse 11. We read these words. After two days was the feast of Passover and unleavened bread. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him by craft and put him to death. That's Jesus. But they said, not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar of the people. And I'm going to jump a few verses. I'm going to jump down towards to continue the exact story. Down to verse 10. And Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went unto the chief priest to betray unto him unto them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought how, Judas sought, how he might conveniently betray him or Jesus. And I purposely left out this one single part. Because I want to back up and talk about that. And I want to look at this entire paragraph, this this entire event by highlighting some of the details that the author seems to highlight. We can break it down this way. If you have those notes that I sent out on Friday, you have them in hand, and maybe you've already done some of what I encourage you to do, make some comparisons, and we'll get to that in a few moments. But let's just list off where we're going to go this morning in this study. The first thing that seems to be highlighted that's very important, and that's for you who are doing serious Bible study, is note the day, actually, the days of the week that are mentioned. Then we're going to see the determination of the wicked. And then we're going to look at the devotion of the woman who's mentioned here. And then we're going to look at the desertion of the wasted one. And so as we just dissect it, follow along as we go through it. And, and let me see if I can help you to just understand some things a little bit better by giving you some of that information about the day of the week. So the question comes up, what day of the week did this occur? We read in verse 1 and down through the rest of the passage that it occurred on that, that Wednesday before Jesus Christ is going to be crucified, that Tuesday-Wednesday period. And so here it is, it's given in verse 1 that we have that Wednesday night, uh, Wednesday more, uh, evening or morning, we, we just don't know exactly when Wednesday, but the section that I purposely left out is actually a flashback. And we read in John chapter 12, the parallel passage, that when we read the account of them having a meal in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, that's in verses 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9, that we learn that that actually happened not on Wednesday, but the Saturday before, the Saturday evening. 
in fact, that had happened. And so you ask yourself the question, why does Mark all of a sudden jump around chronologically and stick something in the middle of a Wednesday event, Wednesday being verses 1, 2, 10, and 11? And I think the reason is because what happens is the story in verses 3 down through 9, it gives us background information as to why Judas would be all of a sudden come to the point that he is going to betray Christ. And so there's a flashback of a few days and saying, well, here's what happened. Judas, before he went to them, he determined because of this final straw that broke, broke the camel's back. And it goes back to that Saturday evening. And what we find out is that the story gives us not only information about when it is, when the events are happening, but it emphasizes something else. It emphasizes to us the determination of the wicked individuals. The wicked ones, the ones I'm calling wicked, are the religious leaders, the rulers of Israel at that time. And uh, we set the scene, and we have to remember that this has been their plan to get rid of Jesus for a long time. Now, in this text, what we just read, they're seeking how they might take him by craft. But we read in, in Mark's writings, if we jump back to chapter 3, verse 6, and we're going back to the very beginning of his ministry, we read these words. And the Pharisees went forth and straightway took counsel with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. So already within the first few months of his ministry, the religious leaders had it in their mind that they were going to get rid of Jesus, that they were going to destroy him. And it's been going on now for several months that Jesus has been preaching and they've been wanting to get rid of him. And then when Sunday came, where Jesus came through and cleansed the temple, uh, or Sunday was the parade, Palm Sunday, and then Monday when he cleansed the temple, we read that they had even determined even more that they would get rid of him. We read in chapter 12, verse 12, and they sought how to lay hold on him, but feared the people, for they knew he had spoken parables against them, and they left him and went their way. So they've been planning this for months. And then all of a sudden now this week when, when he disrupted their commerce and affected their pocketbook because they were the ones who were basically reaping the profits from the hucksters in the temple. And so now they're very upset. And then he bested them on Tuesday in those discussions. And so they are determined they want to get rid of Jesus. And so the news has gone out. And, and Judas even knows about it. Others have heard about it, that they want to get rid of him, which prompts Judas to all of a sudden form an alliance with him. And so here they are, more determined than ever, according to Mark chapter 14, that they need to get rid of him. But I want you to catch something, how vile they have become. It says here that they are going to take him by craft at the end of verse 1. The idea is they're going to take him by whatever means possible. The, liter the word literally can be translated by treachery. So they're willing to lie. They're willing to be able to be dishonest. They're willing to all of a sudden accuse Jesus falsely. Whatever it takes, they are going to do what they can to get rid of him. And so what we have is the, the description of what happens when they find out they have an insider. When all of a sudden they hear when Judas comes to them and says, hey, I'm going to join an alliance with you. I'm going to covenant with you. It says that when they heard it, verse 11, they were glad. They were excited. They, are, they were joyous because now they have a way and a plan that they can put together. Somebody helping them to define that moment when they can get a hold of Jesus when he's away from the crowds. And so just shows us how evil, how wicked these people were. And here they were, the religious leaders, the ones who were to shepherd the people, the ones who were to guide them into truth. But they are so determined, they are so corrupted by their bitterness, by their anger, by their jealousy, 
that they are now going to do whatever it takes to get rid of Jesus. And Judas is going to become a part of their plan. He's going to participate. He's going to be their, their um, comrade in arms in doing these evil deeds. So we have the day of the week, which is important in your Bible study, in understanding this passage. We have as well the uh, description or the determination of the wicked one. Where I want to go here is I want to go into this next section, the devotion of the woman. And that is where Mark seems to emphasize a lot of what happens in this one time period. He gives us some of the background in verses 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9 of what happened that prompted Judas to yoke up with those wicked, wicked religious leaders. And so we read in the story about a woman. Mark does not name her. And I think that's significant for us as we'll come to in a few minutes. But you have this woman that, that uh, she, is going to, she is going to celebrate Jesus. Now to set the scene, what happens is we get information. We would have to go, and you can make the comparison in your own time, in John chapter 12 where we get the parallel passage where it's recorded what exactly happened as well as Mark, but it adds when it happened. According to John chapter 12, this event happens on the Saturday evening, sometime after sundown, after the Sabbath day, remember, Friday evening from the sunset until we have up until Saturday is concluded, which would be sundown Saturday evening. Sometime after sundown, there's going to be this feast. And so let, let's set the scene. What happens is the Jesus apparently had been traveling with a lot of the other pilgrims that week before, headed down to Jerusalem, coming from, from their, their area where he's done some miracles. He's healed the ten lepers. He's healed the blind men of Jericho. And the crowds are building as they are making their pilgrimage down to Jerusalem. And so come towards Friday afternoon, getting close in the late in the afternoon, they need to get to some place where they're not traveling on the Sabbath. Apparently they park at this little village of Bethany. And there they come to probably the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus because they frequented in the past. We understand that. We know that. And so that's where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived. And so if Jesus comes and he's going to celebrate Sabbath day with them, where they have the Sabbath meal, and then he's joining them, and he's with his friends, he's with his 12 disciples. And so we don't know exactly, but this is probably a good assumption, that Jesus is there, celebrates the Sabbath. Sabbath time ends on that Saturday when the sun goes down. And so what they do is they go and they are invited as a group, all of them, are invited as a group to a home that we read of a a man in Bethany who is called in Mark chapter 14, verse 3, being in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper. Okay, and so we get that idea that they are now at some other house, some friend's house, somebody that's a little bit known. John uh, 12 adds that Lazarus was there. And that Lazarus, and we learned that his sisters as well, John 12, that they were there. And so Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are with Jesus and his 12. They are now at Simon the leper's home. And they're celebrating this feast, this meal that they're having together. Again, Passover's done, so it's not the Passover meal. But they're all together. Now the question that comes up is, who's Simon the leper? And uh, the answer that we have is, we don't know. We really don't know. We apparently... Uh, he is somebody that we assume that he, that he had leprosy in the past and it was healed. 
And it had to be gone. It, otherwise, nobody's going to be coming to his home. He, they wouldn't be associating with him. They wouldn't be affiliating with him. They would have nothing to do with him. So apparently he had been a leper sometime in the past, healed by Jesus. Again, we don't know. Uh, it could be. It could be that he's like Zachariah, uh, uh, Zacchaeus, excuse me, that Jesus ministered to him and Zacchaeus in response throws the big meal. Could this be the same thing? Possibly. We, we just don't know for certain. Um, there, are, there are others who apparently know him because when Mark is writing this account, Mark is just throwing out the name Simon the leper as if his readers, his audience knows who's he's, who he's talking about. So apparently Simon had a good reputation later on in the, in the growth of the church period. But we, um, we do know that some people suggest that this is a relative of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Some have even suggested maybe it's their father. Some have said it's some type of relative. And the reason that they say that they've got some connection with this individual is because according to John chapter 12, Martha is preparing the meal. So Martha is planning it. She's preparing it. They're all together. And so she's, once again, in the kitchen, and she's laboring in order to serve Jesus Christ. And so we have that little tidbit of information that she's actively involved in the preparation. So the idea that it could be a relative, somebody close to her, a father, uncle, somebody like that, and that she's just kind of helping out in the household because she is there and, and visible and present, um, probably. Okay, and that, that's the best we can say about him. But we just don't know any other details, rather than making those possible connections. What happens in the meal is this, that as the meal is going on, a woman, Mark does not tell us who the woman is. He just says in the story, as he sat at meat, okay, apparently referring to Jesus, there came a woman having an alabaster box of ointment of spikenard, very precious. She broke the box, poured it on his head, and there were some that had indignation within themselves and said, why was this waste of ointment made? And so we don't know from Mark's writing who the woman is. But again, we get a little bit more information. If we jump to John chapter 12, that gives the parallel account. John tells us that Martha is there. John tells us that Mary is there. And he tells us Lazarus is there. He doesn't say Mary the sister, but it's the assumption, it's the conclusion, that if her other siblings are there, this is the Mary we're talking about. Mary the sister of Lazarus, sister of Martha. And so Mary, this woman that we'll refer to her for most of the time now as Mary, um, she comes to Jesus. And the account goes on that as they're sitting and during the course of the meal, she comes up and she, all of a sudden, she anoints Jesus. She takes this alabaster box of ointment and she pours it on his head, we find out in this text, and we find out that she also pours it on his feet in John chapter 12. And uh, then, according to John 12, not in Mark's account, but in John 12, she then wipes up the uh, excess of oil with her own hair, which is, this, this act is really, really unusual, very significant. There are a lot of little tidbits of details, a little bit of the culture and the customs that I'd like to share with you to help you to understand the importance, the impact, and how profound this act was on her part. In the ancient Near Eastern world, women wouldn't do this. This was atypical of somebody walking up during a meal. Uh, it was very typical in the Jewish culture at that time that when there was a meal going on and the men were the bulk of the people around the table, which apparently this is the case. 
in this story. Because Martha is serving, we read very clearly, and Mary is coming up, and she apparently wasn't there. She could have been serving. But the men were there. And it was very, very uh, customary that the ladies would kind of step back into the background and they wouldn't play uh, an integral part of the meal. It would basically be seen and not heard. And for her to all of a sudden step up and do something that stopped the conversation, that interrupted everything that was going on, that drew attention to her, that would be really, really culturally unusual. And then as well to touch somebody publicly that wasn't her spouse. To, uh, to go up and do something so intimate as to pour things on his head, to use her hair to wipe his feet. And especially in that day and age, if you remember from our studies when we were talking about uh, discipleship, Pastor Art did some of that, and then I followed up a little bit about talking about discipleship. Those people who were called rabbi, those people who were teachers, they especially had this unwritten law that they would not touched, they would not be touched by ladies in public. It was, it was just taboo to do that. So for Mary to come up and to anoint Jesus this way, this was extremely unusual. It would stop all the conversation at the table. And so here she is. She is assuming the role of a servant, uh, washing the feet, wiping his feet down as, long, as well as anointing his head. And so Mary is doing something that is very, very unusual, very, very significant, and add not only to what she did, but add to, added to that is what she used. The ointment that we dis, get described in this text is something very, very expensive. All the different accounts that record this, they give us the idea that this was an extremely expensive ointment that she used. It's called a spikenard, which most religious scholars have come to the conclusion that this is one of those rare perfumes that comes from probably the land of India, which would involve uh, a lot of cost and expense just because of its, in, its importation. And so it's very rare. When it talks about the Roman idea of the Roman pound, we're talking about 12 ounces you know, like one of those bottles of water that you, that plastic bottles that you have, that was filled with this ointment. And this ointment that is in there is worth 300 pence. That is a year's wage, 300 working days in the year. And so it's a year's wage of monies that all of a sudden is being poured out on Jesus' head and then down his feet and she's wiping it off. So it's a significant amount of perfume to be poured out at one time, which is probably the explanation of why, very clearly, why the aroma filled the entire place. It's very pungent, very strong, because the amount that was poured out was much more than typically is being used by somebody uh, with perfume. And if we remember and have our understanding right of the culture and the people's background. Um, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were probably not a very, very, very wealthy family that they would typically have perfume that cost an entire year's wage. Um, the reason I say that is because in the times that we record about their home life, you have Martha doing the working in the kitchen, not servants. You have Martha that, that she wants Mary to come and join her as if she's 
you know, all of a sudden the lone person in the kitchen. And she's the one doing the serving of the meal. So they're probably, our conclusion is that they're probably not an extremely wealthy family. So where did they get this bottle of perfume that would cost a year's wage? The conclusion by many is this is some type of family heirloom, something that was given to them and a very expensive gift. Bottom line is it would be something that would be very, very valuable to them extremely valuable to those people in their middle-class society that they lived in at that time. And she takes the bottle, that full bottle of those 12 ounces, and she breaks it with the idea that it's not going to be recovered or recouped. The idea is that it's completely given to Jesus Christ, poured out upon him in this act of her devotion, her worship, her servanthood to Jesus Christ, as we'll see in a few moments. And so no intent of recovering it. Not like a spill that you and I might say, okay, and if we use a little bit of whatever the item is, we'll try to recoup the excess from on top. There's no plan of that. It's going to be gone and given completely. And so when we look at her act of devotion, we conclude she gave a very expensive gift to the Lord. That's clear. And what strikes me is several other thoughts that go along with it. She gave this without a command being given. It wasn't like Jesus said, okay, all of you, let's, let's do some collection here. You come and you give me what you can. You come, you know, like some types you see in movies and portrayals of royalty and people are coming and giving them gifts and presenting their very best. He never asked. He never commanded her. She is imprompted of her own spirit out of her inner being to just come up and do something extremely unusual as an act of devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's spontaneous. Now, obviously she planned it well enough that she brought this perfume with her from her home. But she has this determination that's coming from her own heart to do something. She, um, she gives this gift without regard for what others might think or say. Um, in the past, when she did something really extravagant for the Lord, like stop serving and sit down and listen to Jesus. When she stopped serving to sit and listen to Jesus and be at his feet, that we read about in Luke chapter 10, her sister got mad at her. Her sister got very upset with her and with Jesus. And so here she is. We read about her at another meal that she, if she had been working in the kitchen, she breaks away. She goes and kneels down at the feet of Jesus. And she's once again taking time out if she had been serving. Her sister obviously is serving according to John chapter 12. And she probably knew fully well that her sister would get upset with her once again. Because she's doing something that ladies aren't supposed to do. And she's doing this act when she had other things that her sister would want her to do. And yet she didn't stop in regards for what others might say or think. Even though they've been critical of her in her past. And, and told her that that type of excessive display of fanaticism for Christ is just not something that she should be doing. She did it anyway. Something else that strikes me is she does it without reservations. She pours out the entire bottle. This is an excessive, zealous act by most people's standards. She's fanatical, but she doesn't seem to think she's fanatical. She thinks that this is an appropriate gift to give to the Lord. Something that is of her best, something that is uh, precious to her, to her family, something that she gives without any reservations to Jesus Christ. It strikes me that she does this without regard for herself. In the, in the fact that she is going to do something 
that would, um, would depict her as a woman that's acting the way she shouldn't act. That could all of a sudden draw the ire and the, um, the criticisms of others around her for doing something so, so forward, something so inappropriate. And she, she doesn't stop. She, out of her devotion and her love and her zeal and her fanaticism for the Lord, she approaches him, she pours out the oil, she is just determined that she is going to assume the role of a servant worshiper and carries out this deed that, again, by most people's standards, would be very excessive. So without regard for what others may think, without hesitation, and, no doubt, without wondering about what does my future hold. Maybe I should only give a few drops because I might need this in the future. My brother had died. What if he dies again? What are we going to rely upon? Maybe we'll need this bottle of ointment to help pay the way later on. She just, she gives it all. She is totally engrossed, engulfed in worshiping and adoring Jesus Christ and giving him her very, very best. It just strikes me that she's done something phenomenal and in that culture fanatical, but the words of Jesus are very clear that he doesn't think this is excessive. He doesn't think this is fanatical. In fact, he says she has done what she could. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to back up a little bit more. And where he makes the comment, uh, he says, she hath done, verse 6, a good work. Something that, the word that he uses for good there is something that is beautiful, something that is wonderful, something that he appreciated. And so excessive giving to Christ is something that he doesn't deplore, doesn't discourage, but something that he readily accepted and appreciated and approved of. So we go a little bit further in the story. And we want to find out what was the response of the others who were present. Well, I already read part of the verse in verse 4 that there's indignation within themselves and some said, why was this waste of the ointment made? For it might have been sold for more than 300 pence, that is your year's wage, and have been given to the poor. And they murmured against her. Several different thoughts to just highlight. Okay, The word that's used here is for those who had indignation against her is the idea of all of a sudden to flare the nostrils, to have that visual very apparent display of anger and, and disgust with what she has done. And as we go through the text, it says that, that this, I, this um, upsetness was the exact same response the disciples had when we read about James and John, their mother involved, going to Jesus and saying, can my son sit on the right and left hand side of your throne? And the others were jealous, they were upset, and they flared their nostrils at James and John. Well, now they're flaring their nostrils at Mary. They're disgusted with what she's done. Disgusted because a woman's touching a man? Disgusted because this great amount of, of this precious ointment that they're aware of the expense. They're aware that this is something she had in her possession that was very, very valuable. And where that awareness came from, I don't know. But they're upset about this. And they're agitated by it. And so we read in John chapter 12, we read in this text that it says there were some. John chapter 12 says Judas was the one who was the most agitated. Judas was the one who was most critical of it. And yet Mark indicates that he's not the only one. 
that there were others of the twelve that were also engaging because he uses that idea, again, that we've already read, that there were some that had indignation. And verse 5, they, plural, murmured against her. And so here we have the story that, that as she is doing this tremendous act of zealous worship of the Lord, they're very upset. And the word murmur is a strong word that means they verbally rebuked her. Now you just think about you being Mary. You're doing this act for Jesus Christ. You assume everybody else has the same uh, zeal in their heart for Jesus Christ. And you're doing something, giving him your very best. And all of a sudden, you are rebuked by his inner circle. You are being verbally put down criticized in front of everybody, they are making comments about you. And so that could be extremely discouraging. But here she is. She's doing it openly, serving the Lord, giving to the Lord, and openly being criticized for it. And so the account kind of keeps on going with all of a sudden that comment that is really important that we need to take a minute to discuss. Their chief complaint and their, their idea that got them was they make the comment, why was this waste of ointment made? Think that through. Giving something to Jesus is a waste? Giving of your very best to Jesus is a waste? He's not worth receiving someone's very best? The, the, the disciples should have rebuked one another instead of her. But their comments were, this is a waste. They as well, they make the, the argument that we could have given this to the poor. And so, are they saying the poor deserve much more of a love gift than Jesus? Is that what, what they really believe in their hearts? And again, that's the comments, that's what we read, that's their initial reaction without thinking through what, you know, all the implications of what they're saying. And uh, the comment from Jesus is really, really important. Jesus responds, and we get, the, we get the impression by the verbiage of what he uses. Let her alone. Why trouble you her is the idea that he, a very strong, very emphatic stop. Stop what you're doing. Stop what you're saying. You, know, you, you guys be quiet. And then he, then he commends her. She has done a beautiful, uh, wonderful thing that I approve of and I appreciate. Uh, something that, is, that he considered wonderful. And uh, then we have the comment by Jesus that is often misunderstood. The poor you have always, but, and it's very highlighted in the original, me, not always. Not always. Now, by first glance at that, here's what many have assumed. By first glance, on the surface of, the, of what the disciples said and how Jesus responds, some critics of Christianity, critics of Jesus Christ, have all of a sudden said Jesus doesn't care for the poor like his disciples did. Jesus was very selfish in this act. And my, my response would be absolutely not so. That is not true. When you go through the life of Jesus Christ and you look at his teachings time and time again, Jesus was very concerned about the poor. In the Sermon on the Mount, he makes the comment, when you do your charitable giving, your almsgiving, not if you do it, but when you do it, it was an assumption that his followers would be charitable. And he encouraged such charity. When he said in that same sermon, when he said, if somebody comes and asks to borrow of you, that you shouldn't turn away from them. 
You shouldn't shy away from them, but rather you should be helping out individuals was his intent and what he states as he goes through the passage. When um, he's talking to the Pharisees on another occasion, he makes comment, when you give a banquet, invite the poor, invite the crippled, invite the lame and the blind. And we all know that the Pharisees would never have done such a thing, that that was totally contrary to their practice and policy. They would invite the other hoi polloi of society. They would always put down the widows and the poor, and they would take advantage of them, as we've studied time and time again in previous studies, that they were individuals who were all about keeping the money, making the money. And though they had to have an outward demeanor that said, okay, we're going to do some charity to the poor, they weren't tended that that way. But Jesus comes along and speaks revolutionary ideas like have banquets for poor people. Do a feast for the lame and the crippled, the the, uh, ones who are the rejects of society. So to claim that Jesus didn't care for the poor is just uh, an absurd fallacy of going through his, his life and his message. In fact, remember just shortly before this time when Jesus is making his last pilgrimage down towards Jerusalem from Galilee, he is confronted by that rich young ruler who comes and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus encouraged that wealthy young man to go and sell, give the money to the poor, and then you'll have treasure in heaven. And that's a whole nother discernment. But he makes it very clear that being charitable is laying up rewards in heaven. He never discourages charity in his teachings on a normal day-to-day basis. In fact, we read in Acts 20 as they're summarizing the life of Jesus Christ that once again they're reminding themselves and one another that Jesus was always promoting the idea of being charitable. It is more blessed to give than to receive, as they quote his basic teachings and summarize them. So for you and I or someone to just even think or suggest that Jesus was selfish in this passage and Jesus was inconsiderate of the poor, that's absurd. That is absolutely not the case. No one of that era seemed to minister as much to the poor of society as Jesus did. And Jesus was engaged constantly with the outcast, with the individuals that even his own 12 had told them, hold the kids back, keep the lepers away. But Jesus extended himself time and time again to the needy people of his society. So what, what do we do? What do we take out of his comment now when he says... Yeah, she's done a good work. The poor you have with you always, and whensoever you will, you may do them good. But me you have not always. What did he mean by that? What exactly was he driving at? And I think it is extremely profound what he is suggesting in this text. He, he is making a clear statement of fact. A statement of fact that although we may use some funds and gifts to help out individual Poor, poor individuals, struggling individuals, which we should do, which we as a body have done, which many of you have done, that's good. And that is something appropriate that we should be doing. But the fact is, we will never totally eradicate pro- poverty. That is something that only Christ can do when he returns. We take, we take uh, shots at it on an individual basis, but he's making a, ba- a general statement. 
Poverty will exist in this world until he returns and sets up his kingdom. So the poor you're going to have with you always. There is always going to be opportunity to be charitable to this person, that person, this person. We're going to have plenty of opportunity in these next weeks to show charity to individuals who are going to be struggling as a result of this current pandemic. And we ought to be, and we should be, and that's appropriate. But what his, his comment isn't to decry or ignore the people in need. But what he is doing at this moment is giving the idea that, yes, help them in the future. And, and that's appropriate. But recognize that right now, you only have me for a few short hours. Actually, days, because it's Saturday evening, and he's going to be around for the next week, part of the week. But I'm here only on a short basis. So if you want to do something for me, personally, directly, you only have a short time. And this woman realizes that. And she is taking advantage of helping, or of showing her devotion to me right at this moment. And so let her alone, is his comment. Stop rebuking her. Stop giving, let her love on me. Let her do her devotion. Let her show her understanding. Let her give me her adoration. Stop rebuking her. She is doing something that is really, really good. You'll have plenty of opportunity to do the good to the poor later. But this, she's taking priority, an opportunity of her priorities and using the moment to display her fanatical devotion to Jesus Christ in a fashion that he thinks is appropriate. Why'd she do it? Maybe that'll help me put this all together. The woman did it for several reasons. One, being Mary, the one who is the sister of Martha and Lazarus, it's very clear why she did it. One is appreciation for what Jesus has done to her. Her brother's life being restored was much more valuable than a year's wage. And so out of gratitude, she has planned this and she performs this. I think there's another reason it's adoration. Adoration in this sense, that this is an act like some of the acts of the Old Testament where David pours out the water that his friends had gotten, where in offerings they were allowed at times to pour out oils. She is pouring out herself to Jesus Christ. She is giving her very best, her future dependence. She is giving that which is priceless in her, in her mind, in her eye. Maybe a family heirloom that has a lot of significance, but she's giving it to Jesus, pouring out herself. Now, you and I, in understanding, it is good to give to the poor because the second greatest commandment is love others as you love yourself. But what she is doing and why it is most appropriate to be concerned about the poor later, she is fulfilling the greatest of all commandments. And that is to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, thy soul, thy mind. And so she's performing the first and greatest of all commandments while the others are thinking, well, let's do something that is for following the second greatest commandment. And Jesus is saying, no, she's got her priorities right. She's adoring me. She's giving me praise. She is recognizing my deity. She is recognizing who I am. And she is giving me, her God, her Lord, her worship of her very, very, very best. There's another reason that's given in this text. And that is when Jesus says uh, in this passage, she hath done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body to the burying. She is preparing him. 
She is doing what Jewish culture had, where they didn't embalm the way the Egyptians did, but rather they would anoint the body with oils. And that would help cut down on the obvious stench that could happen with death. And it was an act of grace and love as they performed those final moments with their family member before they were put in the grave. She has come ahead to anoint my body. He is making it very clear that part of her motivation is preparing him for what's coming. Giving him the oils of of somebody who is going to die for her. And so Jesus is making it clear that she got it. She understood what he's teaching. She understood all of his lessons. And I remind you of his lessons. Go back with me. Take a journey back. Go back to chapter 8. Chapter 8 in Mark, which is just a few weeks before this happened. In chapter 8, we read in verse 31 these words that, that Jesus is speaking. He says in verse 31, He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. Very clearly, he's beginning to teach, which has the idea, he didn't mention it just once, but he's starting now to refer to this time and time again. What's the response of the disciples? Look at the next verse. The next verse, Peter took him inside and rebuked him and said, This can never be. And this is when Jesus responds and says, Peter, you don't understand. Get thee behind me, Satan. We have the same thing repeated in Mark chapter 9. If you go to Mark chapter 9, you have Jesus once again telling them in verse 31, He taught His disciples and said unto them, The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of the men. They shall kill Him, and after that He is killed. He shall rise the third day. But what happens? We read the next verse. They understood not that saying, but they were afraid to ask. They didn't get it. We go to another chapter. We go to chapter 10, and around that same sections of the 30s, we read where Jesus speaks and says, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man shall be delivered unto the chief priests and the scribes. They shall condemn him to death, shall deliver him to the Gentiles. They shall mock him, scourge him, spit upon him, shall kill him. Third day he shall rise again. And then we read that the disciples, they're, they're all of a sudden, this is the passage where James and John said, hey, by the way, um, what about us sitting at the kingdom? And they don't even, it, it seems to go right over their head that he's going to suffer and die and bury. And they're just looking at what's in the future for them, how they're going to profit from him setting up his kingdom. And the other disciples get mad, and Jesus gives his famous comment about the Son of Man is not to come to be ministered, but to be ministered, not to uh, be ministered unto, but to minister to others. And so they just never got it. The twelve who were his companions, and yet this one woman did. She understood. So she comes and she anoints him in preparation for the burial. And the question is, why did she understand? It probably goes back to Luke chapter 10. That in the midst of all the other busyness of his ministry, she sat and listened. She sat and listened. She didn't sit and plan. She didn't sit and you know, forecast what she was going to do or derive new questions. She listened. She listened and she listened and she listened and she took in the words of Jesus Christ, meditated, pondered, while the others, busy serving. Her sister, the disciples, busy of what's, what are we going to do in the future? How can, we, how can we manage things? But she sat and listened. You know, I look at her whole story and several thoughts come to mind. 
Several thoughts come to mind like this. Zealous acts of worship towards Christ are good to do. They are really good to do. And the reason being is he's worthy of our extravagant devotion. He's worthy of receiving our fanatical worship, our excessive service, that Jesus Christ has done so much for us, like he has done for Mary. And you stop and think, what has he done for me? How has he provided for my family? How has he provided for my loved ones? What has Jesus done in our home? How has he been meeting our needs? And then you take it into the higher realm of forgiveness, answered prayer, fellowship, the Holy Spirit, the word of God that he's given to you. He deserves more than just moderate, mundane forms of worship. Jesus deserves some real active, aggressive expressions of adoration on your and my part. I learned this. Zealous acts of worship towards Christ are possible for any and all of us to do. Mark never names the woman. He never says who she is, as if to leave it wide open for the readers to say, well, any woman could be doing this. And we don't have to do what she did by giving a year's wage, something of that value, whatever your annual income may be. Because if we remember the story just before he arrives, uh, just before this last uh, chapter of chapter 13 ends with the story of Jesus on Tuesday watching what's going on in the temple and he sees a widow who puts in two mites, the twoest of the lowest of coins, and he commends her. It's not the amount. It's not the, it's not the price tag that we Americans are so typical used to doing. But Jesus is pleased with whatever we give when we zealously give to him. So we say, what, what zealous act of devotion can we give this week? We're kind of housebound. Well, what about a zealous act of Bible reading that's unusual for you? The time and the devotion in prayer. What about a zealous act of communicating your faith, the gospel, sharing a witness with a loved one, with a, with a neighbor, Maybe you can't see them face to face, but via all other types of devices, via handwriting, via emailing. What about a zealous act of worship that you could do by you communicating with other brothers and sisters in our church family that don't have a lot of family and friends in the area, but you could take an evening You could take two evenings this week and write several cards to individuals. You could call individuals and stop the busyness of what you have within your household and reach out by making a phone call to some of the other individuals, not necessarily your friends and family, but others in the church body and get to know them. Just words of encouragement, of ministering to some who may be extremely lonely. Acts of worship, acts of encouragement, acts of adoration, Zealous acts of worship towards Christ show real spiritual discernment. They show that you get it. You get it that it's, it's not about me. You get it that you would do unto others as you would have them do unto you. You get it that Christianity is not taking, but it is giving. Zealous acts of worship towards Christ are not always encouraged by others. We know that. 
We know that the world would be happy if you and I, in our practice of Christianity, would be moderate, never fanatical, and never challenge them about their, their relationship with Christ. We know that that's the world, way the world operates. And in fact, even some Christians would discourage other Christians from zealously serving by giving to Christ. Extra time, service, their own children to the Lord's work, missions ministries. There's going to be critics, but that ought not stop you. Let, let's make this conclusion, okay? Zealous acts of worship for Christ are never overlooked by the Lord. They're never overlooked. He sees them. It was very obvious because in this moment, but it wasn't going, going to go unnoticed. It wasn't going to be something that would all of a sudden disappear. <laughs> Last Sunday, we get home. And when we go home, it's like, okay, spring cleaning time. So late in the evening, it's like, I'm going to just do some house cleaning because I was bored. And I started just going along the edge of the cupboards across the top, vacuuming some of the dust that's been piling up there since... Who knows when, but I, as we were, I was cleaning the kitchen. And as I was vacuuming, all of a sudden, something got sucked up into the vacuum cleaner. That something was a piece of paper that I have with me right now. And I pulled this paper off thinking, How, why did Deb put something up there? How did it get up there? And I found this note. Dad, we are conducting an experiment. Please let us know when you find this. Love, Tony and Becky. So I guess they think that I'm just this fanatical cleaner in our family and in our house, that they wanted to see how long this note would sit up there before I'd find it. And they even dated it. They placed it up there 1229. So they told me to let them know when I found it. So late as it was, I called them up. They sound like I got them out of bed, but I didn't care. And so I called them and said, hey, I got it. And neither one of them knew what I was talking about when I first talked to them. I said, I got your note. They still didn't know. And then in conversation, when I describe what I'm talking about, neither one of them can remember, is this from last year, the year before, the year before, how long it was that it was sitting up there. My point is this. We forget things. We, we don't even know, you know, we overlook things, you know, something on top of the cupboard. We, but what you do for Christ is never forgotten. Never forgotten. He commands zeal by a Mary, by an unnamed Mary, or a widow woman. And he assures her that her zeal will be spoken of for generations. So my question is this. What are you leaving behind this week that may speak volumes of your dedication to Jesus Christ? What is it in your life, in your zeal for the Lord, that is very apparent to your family members, to your loved ones, that says, I am following Christ? I am serving him to the best of my abilities. The last one that we wanted to talk about was the desertion of the wicked. Time is going to escape. But let me just tell you, the reason I picked this title for the wasted one was because in this passage, why was this waste made? It's the same word that's used when it says, Jesus says, I have kept everybody but the son of perdition. Same root word, waste, perdition. How is it that that Judas is be, is considered a waste? Well, think about it. One of the twelve. He had that position. He's able to have done public ministry. He's an individual that, that threw it all away to betray Jesus Christ. And in fact, if you look at the account and say, well, he couldn't help it. I, I don't think so. 
I don't think so. I, I do understand that it was predicted by Christ. I do understand Satan was moving in Judas as this whole event unfolds. But Mark makes it clear that Judas chose to betray him. As you look at just a couple thoughts as I close, it says Judas went to the chief priests. They didn't come to him. He purposely seeks them out. He knows that they want, but he goes. And it says he sought how he might betray over and over conveniently, discreetly, he is going to betray Jesus Christ. It's all premeditated. He chose to do this and he's responsible. Why? I think it's about money. It's about money, and that's why he's the one that's criticizing Mary for her gift. As well, he's even told that he's a thief, that he had been embezzling from the monies. In return for his efforts, he gets 30 pieces of silver. <laughs> that's the price of a slave that was gored by an ox. What, what do we know about Judas? Hmm. That he gave up Christ. What would it cost for you to give up in your Christianity, to stop following Christ? Fame, fortune, lure of immorality, greed, the approval of the world. What's it going to take to get you to give up Christ? Disappointment in how things are right now? And upsetness? Broken expectations? God not doing what you think he should do for you? Listen, you and I need to be careful that we are more like Mary, zealous in adoration and service than a Judas who walks away from Jesus Christ.